This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today it is Wednesday, April the 6th. Big market update today. Stocks fell for the second day in a row. NASDAQ slid 2%. The Fed gave policy tightening plans ultimately. So we saw the 10-year rise to a three-year high um, to reflect that. So the 10-year is you know, currently sitting right around 26 um, the Federal Reserve officials laid their plans out to shrink trillions in bond holdings. So right now, the yield is at the highest level since March 2019. Um, and, and yeah, um, so I mean, that, that was really the big reason for the sell-off today. Yeah, so it looks like officials agreed in March that they would sell off about $90 billion, uh, a month, so reducing their balance sheet. About $60 billion of that will be in treasuries and then $35 billion in mortgage-backed securities. They'll let those roll off. Pretty significant, going to start adding some liquidity to the market. I don't think the market had priced this level of aggressive unwinding, but um, we also did see there are strong indications that the next rate hike, which may come in May, will be 50 basis points, not the typical 25. So all in all, we saw the market react uh, pretty steadily. You mentioned the 10-year. It was flat, but we did see a run-up over the last couple of days. Uh, another big thing is we have seen mortgage demand drop by 40% year over year. A big reason for that is the run-up, so a lot there's not really – any refinancing going on uh, as we saw the the rates begin to rise which may have an overall impact on the housing market but uh, continue to watch that 10-year treasury as we had <clears throat> thoughts that it might pass three in the next coming weeks so it's interesting i'm kind of torn between whether or not the market had priced this in versus how much of it was just the fact that Chairwoman Brainerd, who is known as to be a dove, was the one who came out the minutes, right? Um, you know, right in front of me, I've got this pretty interesting uh, chart titled What Lail Giveth, uh, and it shows, you know, where rates were in her, the yields were in her interview in November versus her speech that just occurred right now. So, you know, I think a lot of for traders it was kind of a shock to the system just because this came from a dub, right? Um, I don't know whether or not they were completely taken aback on what the actual content was, maybe more than, you know, who was the person delivering. But, yeah, you know, I'm just speculating here. Yeah, well, it, it is a good point, right? Because every single time that someone from the Fed makes a, makes a comment, how they frame it is so important because the market could jump percentages based on if they used a single word um i in my opinion drew i re I, I really do think it's, it's the sheer number so 95 billion really quite aggressively so we saw our first rate hike in quite a long time last month and now pretty much the fed is going to get very aggressive with unwinding and to your point she used the term rapid pace and more aggressive uh for both 
how quickly they're going to unwind their balance sheet and hike uh, percentage points. So uh, I think there's a really high likelihood of a 50 basis point on the upcoming meetings. And then 95 basis points is or 95 billion each month will drastically reduce the balance sheet. <laughs> to your point, it is still nine trillion in assets. So it will take quite a time for them to unwind that. Yeah, and, and I mean, the last time the Fed really attempted this quantitative tightening was 2017, 2018. I mean, we're going to get into job numbers, but, you know, from a lot of fronts, the economy is still running pretty hot. So, uh, the, I mean, the, the, the phasing out is definitely going to be shorter, I guess, this time around. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, yeah, let's just get into March jobs report. Uh, I mean, we had a special, you know, talking points, special guests uh, last week, obviously. So we didn't really get into these numbers. But I mean, private payrolls expanded by 455,000 for the month. Uh, you know, I was about in line with Dow Jones estimates. They estimated 450,000. Um, yeah, so I mean the growth was strong. Um, you know, ADP and, and the Bureau of Labor statistics can can differ a little bit, obviously, but uh, you know, March was for the most part considered a solid pace of, of job growth, especially where we are in like like we're late late cycle recovery, right? I mean, I mean we're 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 mid threes in terms of unemployment, so we we certainly weren't expected to kind of be at this level, I guess, if if you were talking to us uh, a year ago. Absolutely not. And it, it, it was the a little bit slower than months we have previously seen. But to your point now, unemployment rate contracted further to 3.7%. So still drastically low, um, still below four. So it, it, it sh should be noted that we are in a, a much more robust labor market. We saw leisure and hospitality continuing to lead the way, uh, adding over 160,000 positions, but you know, all in all, it's the, the the tight supply of labor is going to continue to see. I think wage growth is is a stat that people have been looking for, especially when we when we begin to talk about inflation, because that seems to to be always on um, the Americans' mind right now. Yeah, it's kind of, a, I, I mean, see, in, in February, there was 5 million more jobs than there was workers, which is kind of in the inverse right now. There's a housing supply, a shortage of 5 million. So it's, you know, pretty much the exact opposite and kind of helps demonstrate some of the inflation we've we've seen on both those fronts. Um, I mean, a lot of people obviously retired. We've talked about this. Uh, I mean, you you had almost a million people uh you know pass away from covid um you know do uh and, you know a lot of them in the workforce as well so so you're i mean those two things combined have just led to an incredibly uh tight labor market never mind you know longer demographic issues of uh, immigration being at very low um pace and as well as birth rates right i mean in terms of expanding population so that's all these things are kind of coupled on top of each other. Right. Well, you had also early retirements. You had a massive loss of, of life and then uh, a decrease in birth rates. So all in all, if you think about uh, GDP growth, you know, it, that your, your total productivity is, is driven by the number of workforce participation, 
we we talked about it uh, on the previous podcast, but we're still in that sixty percent number. Which, if you look at the eighties, we were in the in the eighties, right? So, a big significant drop there. Um, and 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 it is we are combating forty-year high inflations. Job growth has come with accelerated wages, uh, but wages, as we mentioned, are sticky. So once those goes up, it's very hard to then to then cut rage, uh, wages. And that's very similar with prices. So once prices go up on products, they typically don't come back down. Um, so th- that is something to continue to watch. It, it almost feels like we, we think that once supply chain issues come uh, un- under control and that Ukraine is no longer um, being invaded by Russia and oil taps all of a sudden come on that prices are just going to go back to normal. And, and in my opinion, that that's just not going to happen. No. Um, and Russians, I mean, the sanctions have hurt ultimately, but I mean, there's definitely markets. They found their way around it. Um, I mean, India right now is taking an interesting stance. I mean, they're heavily, they have been dependent on Russian military uh, for quite some time. India's, you know, major market has always maintained good relations with both the United States and with Russia. And then the Cold War was with the Soviet Union. So it's always been a balancing act. And, and obviously the Chinese um, have aligned themselves with Russia. So, so you know, they, they do have a lifeline in terms of uh, export markets in a couple of important areas. Uh, so, you know, the sanctions have certainly been effective, but we'll, we'll see, I, I guess, the, the duration of them. You know, it might might take a longer time than 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 maybe we previously thought. Absolutely, and one of the big aspects of that has been a rise in the price of oil, but that's just not the only thing. We saw that inflation is costing the average U.S. household an additional two hundred ninety six dollars per month, according to Moody's Analytics. Uh, we also did see a survey from. CNBC plus Acorns Invest in You survey, quite the name there, mouthful for a survey. Uh, someone in marketing really got their, their hands on that yeah. name. But but overall, <laughs> um, people are we're starting, people are complaining about the rise in prices, but we haven't seen a significant impact on consumer spending. Retail sales did grow at a slower pace in February than we, we had previously seen. I think we're going to see more of a contraction definitely in March when those numbers come out and continue in April. A big area where people are cutting back is dining out, which if we think about the sector hit the hardest by COVID was definitely leisure and hospitality. So if people begin to come back because they can't afford going out. It, it, it really has a, a trickle effect because if people need to pay more at the pump, they don't have that additional income that they, they could then spend going out for drinks or meeting other people out. Also, people are canceling subscriptions. Uh, since the price at the pump is high, we may see people begin to carpool. Um, overall, Drew, what else are we, should we talk about more thinking about the fears around inflation? So what's interesting about it is it, it hasn't been spread out equally across different socioeconomic classes, right? Um, Imagine in fact, that. No, I, I mean, in fact, it's a half point higher for, for middle income consumers um, than those who are either at the highest end or the lowest end. 
So middle class has definitely seen the worst of inflation, uh, more than more than the wealthy and more than the than the poor. Um, so yeah, that 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 you know when you're looking at a big consumer demographic, um, you know that that really you know affects things. And then you know you bring up things like Netflix subscriptions and and travel and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean that's that's kind of the first to go. Well, I was looking at flights this summer uh, for, of course, weddings that were postponed from COVID and, and other family family vacations. And I couldn't believe the, the, the ticker symbol on the Google flights said all time highs on, on on some of the flights. And so gas prices are continuing to be high and people are starting to feel that um, at the pump, but also at the dinner table. And they're going to start cutting back. You know, we talk about how inflation was brought on. It's not I don't think you can just point to one thing. We talk about supply chains and labor markets. Now you have the Russian invasion. That's really going to reduce the amount of barrels of oil in the industry. But we did see from that same survey that 81% of Americans are worried about a recession. So, I, I mean, there's there's parameters that have happened. Um, you mentioned that there's definitely geopolitical uncertainty. Uh, you can talk about Ukraine, but another interesting thing, obviously, is, you know, China's still got a zero COVID policy. They had massive lockdowns in Shanghai. I don't know if some of our viewers might have seen pictures, but for all the brokerages in Shanghai, they pretty much gave them a mattress and said, you're in here for five, six days. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they they made makeshift like showers and, and you'd have 400 people sleeping in their conference rooms. Uh, in order to keep the markets open. So, uh, you know, yeah, that's wild. You've got a population of Shanghai of over 20 million people, huge financial hub, and China's still in this game of, uh, you know, zero COVID um, policy just because a huge part of their elderly population isn't vaccinated. So when we talk about political risk, that's another pressure. Uh, but yeah, to get to your point, you know, immediate um, recessions, You've seen the yield curve between the two and 10 year uh, inverted for the first time since 2019. I mean, that's the historical recessionary indicator. Um, not necessarily that it's imminent, but I mean, there's just a lot of reasons why I think we get to this 81% of Americans fearing uh, recession, right? Um, it's, it, 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 hasn't, it hasn't come in the, out of the blue. Well, especially as you just mentioned, the inverted yield curve, I think out of the last 10 times it has indicated a recession, it's been right 80% of the time. So uh, that's, a, that's a pretty significant number. You know, I, I think a recession versus a slowdown, there's a big distinction there. So for our listeners who, who aren't familiar with the two, a recession is really when you have two quarters of uh, slowdown or, or negative growth. So effectively, your GDP has been declining, whereas a slowdown just means that your GDP is still growing, but the, it, not at the same pace that, that it had been. So right now, I definitely think we're in a slowdown. Are we in a recession? Not yet. Uh, we still are seeing significant growth, right? The U.S. economy had pretty stunning overall recovery, which is why I believe we are seeing the Fed be so aggressive uh, because we, we are in a good spot. Americans have more in the savings account than they did pre-pandemic. Consumer spending has been significantly high, uh, even given the rise in prices. So from that standpoint, GDP has been growing quite strongly. So the overall U.S. economy is 
isn't a great place in my opinion people are looking at the stock market and drew i think this is a line that you always like to use but the stock market isn't the overall market and so just because we're seeing a lot of volatility in in the stock market does not mean that the u.s economy is, is not quite strong at the moment we, we've talked a lot about oil uh probably in the past probably should have talked about diesel a little bit more uh diesels definitely drives inflation more than more than most people think um the price of diesel was about two dollars and three cents per gallon cheaper uh this time last year uh and you know you're looking at some of these big trucks they you know it takes some 125 gallons or more to fill up uh so you're you're looking at several hundred dollars extra uh, every time you know they're, they're in terms of shipping so you know when, with freight that much more expensive you you've seen ultimately the cost of goods uh you know has to increase as well just because the, the transit getting from point a to point b uh is definitely been affected by diesel well it's just incredible because you add we'll call it the average consumer you know we're looking at the gas prices but if you think about the backbone of america they're looking at the diesel prices because if you're looking at um as you mentioned the the larger trucks for trucking um if you're looking at the uh farming industry all the turbines and combines that that are needed for that um all run on diesel planes are run on a subset of diesel fuel so you know all in all uh you know ships now they've had to switch to cleaner fuels so they're on marine gasoline which is a type of of diesel fuel um so if if diesel is used in farming then it's harder and more expensive to harvest crops and that is another driver so even though the price has gone up just as much as gasoline the the overall aspect of that is then people might not be able to run their trucks and harvest or run trains and planes i gotta say automobiles now but but effectively you know the the backbone of america with with is, is all run on it so from the industrial process every all machinery is run on diesel so if that goes up harvesting then goes up producing at a factory then goes up so almost every human activity has some some type of diesel consumption associated with it and it also goes to show why you've seen um i mean europe's definitely been hit by a fuel crunch and and for them it might even be more of a recessionary indicator Uh, when you're looking at s p global uh let's go back to 2019 you know pre-pandemic the u the u.s was consuming 9.3 million barrels of gasoline per day and 4.1 million barrels of diesel fuel europe it was the pretty much the exact opposite so gasoline consumption was only 2.1 million barrels uh compared to 6.8 million barrels of uh, a day for diesel fuel so um yeah that, i mean that's why you've seen increased pressure uh in you know definitely on the other side of the pond as well uh as a result and you're taking out 600,000 barrels from russia exports so in a tight market you then you're already taking out more that's just going to add added pressure that's why we saw biden u.s uh white house announced that we're going to be releasing one million barrels uh, uh per day from our reserves in my opinion it seems like we had made the announcement that we were going to do this last year as well really trying to attempt to bridge the gap until domestic production ramps up i think it's more symbolic anything else we're putting on a band-aid that maybe covers half of the scab and 
and and hoping that's going to make an impact. It might stabilize some prices, but overall, it's not going to do much because if you think about that, one million barrels is about one percent of the daily global consumption, and then also or five percent of U.S. consumption. So you know, it, overall, I don't know if it's going to have as big as an impact at the pump as the Biden administration is hoping for. No, it's just. I mean, one of the limited tools right now, right? Um, so, I mean, the White House also criticized a lot of domestic energy industry. Um, you know, there's they're sitting on you know twelve million dollar acres of federal lands. Um, you know, and there's just a lot of stuff going unused. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of leased acres in existence and and existing wells that. Um, are just kind of they're just not producing as much as, as uh, probably. It, it, I mean, a lot of that's in response to you went from a period where it just wasn't very economically viable. We were in a deflationary environment, and no one was driving their cars, and then and then and then things changed uh, quickly, right? So um, yeah, people kind of, act like it's a switch, right? I mean, if you yeah. just shut down a plant, you can't just all of a sudden then you shut down a well. You can't just next day bring a crew back on and start it back up right i mean these things take time and people think you can just it's like a faucet so you know yeah. we shut down major major plants and then also we're in a transition period where we have seen um plants in the north dakotas newfoundland that are changing from your your diesel plants or whatever to to uh biograde plants or, or or they're in a transition period or just coming back online so it is. Uh, it, it it's not just going to happen overnight to to make up this supply and demand issue that we're seeing in the oil market right now. No, and not to mention like the seasonality. A lot of the rig workers, right? Uh, so some of the temporary nature of that. So um, yeah, it's 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 obviously tough to get production back to where it was. But you know, it, another thing, obviously, we we should be addressing is we're once again using the defense production act um and that's going to be for electric vehicle battery materials we've invoked the defense production act uh, a couple times you know during covid i mean the president's orders are going to be on projects that extract materials so you're looking at lithium nickel cobalt graphite um, all the stuff needed for electric vehicle production uh, we, we talked about this with Matt the other week, uh, how those prices have really gone up as well. So, I mean, the Defense Production Act is is just another way to hopefully remedy some of the huge uh, energy uh, and consumption supply shortages we have. But Absolutely. <clears throat> so if you saw U.S. venture capital investment in uh, EV battery companies, and let's call it 2018 was little under... 500 million in investment um and but compare that to 2021 over 2 billion just in ev battery companies itself so we are now beginning to see a huge investment we are going to have to have a lot more batteries as elon musk has said um, at event we you know they're estimating 18 percent of global cars sold by 2030 will or will be ev vehicles so it's the amount of batteries that we're going to need for long-term storage as well for just electronic vehicles is going to be huge the transportation sec sector in the united states is 
really one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases, not to be expected, right? I mean, there's a large vehicles transporting people, um, but really if we're able to make those gas vehicles uh, electronic um, or electric, then we'd have a huge ability to combat the, the human climate change issue. Oh, no, definitely. That's from Elon Musk of Tesla, but also now of Twitter as well. Um, that was something we yeah, I saw, that. Looked, I saw but that. <laughs> I think he's got now like a 9% ownership stake or something. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, let's it's, see. Uh, it's, 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 it's funny that they're letting him on there because didn't he get into some pretty hot water over some some of his tweets where he said Tesla was going to be fully funded and go private and then the SEC slapped him on the wrist with a subpoena? I think that's why he decided to buy the damn place, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's my rules now. So um, if you can't beat them, buy them. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, what do you think we overlooked this week? Uh, a couple of things. I don't know if we necessarily overlooked. Um, you know, not to beat a dead horse here, but oil executives are going to a congressional hearing today um, about the higher gas prices. So looking at the comments of, of them on there, we did see Deutsche Bank make a call, a big call for recession. So they think that the um, the Fed's fight against inflation is going to push the U.S. economy into recession, not this year, but next year. I don't think they're the only ones in that boat. Um, but then we also um, are continuing to see <clears throat> what happens with with Russian foreign banks? Um, they're continuing talking about uh, bond payments, and then also um, watching the uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, restrictions and uh, everything sanctions that have been happening with them. It seems like they're continuing to roll out, um, making it even more difficult for Russia. What about you, Drew? Yeah, no, definitely. Um... Yeah, I guess one thing, and this is just from an article I read that I found interesting, but it was discussing why Israel is just so good at attracting uh, VC. Um, so when you're looking at how much uh, venture capital did did America attract in 2021 it was 330 billion um, versus Israel's 25.4 billion, but you know, if you're on a per capita basis. That means Israel is getting 28 times more capital flows than that of the U.S. Uh, and that's why, you know, you've seen so much of tech companies moving to places like Tel Aviv. Uh, you know, they lack local venture capital. So the government created a program called Yasma, which, uh, you know, matches any outside venture capital, um, you know, in, a, in an Israeli startup. So that's interesting. But, you know, one of the other things that was really interesting is because Israel's got conscription, you know, they pretty much take their best and brightest, you know, math and science, 16 to eight year old and 18 year olds, put them in a pipeline to go to their unit 3300, which is like the equivalent of our NSA. And so you have all these kids uh, who you know, go into cyber warfare and, and, and surveillance, and then they end up starting these major tech companies that we've seen in that part of the globe. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting article, but. Yeah, it makes sense if you if you're going to get special training and cybersecurity, and that's why we see a lot of the the tech that does come out of there is is focused around cybersecurity or or even hacking for that matter. Right. It's just it's just uh, yeah, it's just a great pipeline for that. Um, 
All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks for the likes and subscribes. Um, we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.